This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. There's a study, a very famous study, when human fears were evaluated. And the number one fear was not death. The number one fear of humans is rejection, to be rejected. And it's this old inherent belief that if we're rejected, if we're without community, if we're without connection, we cannot survive. So this is where our inner critic, bless it, our ego, is trying to do its work of holding us to be connected and not make mistakes and not make errors. And like I say, people please and just sort of be in the middle lane somewhere where we just fit in, you know, and we're we're accepted and we're okay. But what's happening is it's it is affecting us and it's not a nice thing to listen to all the time and it's trying to keep us within our comfort zone well hello everyone and welcome back to Gigi best friend podcast i'm sure you can hear the smile in my voice because i have i think this is one of my favorite episodes on the podcast and I, I interviewed Annalie Howling. I've been following her on Instagram for the longest time. She is a performance coach and a trauma specialist and a speaker. I was just so blown away by this conversation. And she answered all of these questions that I had for her in such a way that makes you understand even the most complex scenarios. And I don't know. I'm just so grateful that she was on the podcast. But let me tell you a little bit about Annalie. She is a highly qualified performance coach with over 20 years experience working with leaders in business, elite sports persons, and members of the armed forces. She specializes in transitional support. And through her unique approach, she's able to ensure her clients overcome any self-imposed limitations to achieve their goals and move forward with confidence and a more fulfilling life. We covered limiting beliefs, negative self-talk, imposter syndrome, rejection, vulnerability, ego, red flags. I loved this conversation so much. And I was so excited when she told me that she's going to be coming to the U.S. very soon. So hopefully we're going to meet in person and she has workshops and coaching. And I, I, I'm just so in awe of her. And I hope you're going to enjoy the episode and please leave a five-star rating and review because it means so much. And I also want to invite you to share this episode with a friend who will enjoy listening. Without further ado, Annalie Howling. Annalie Howling, welcome to Bougie Best Friend Podcast. Thank you so much. It's a joy to be here with you. I'm a big fan and I love your content and I'm just so happy to have you here and kind of talk about all these things that we all go through on a daily basis and sometimes we just don't know how to get out of it. So thank you. I'm really honored to share this space with you as well today. I see what you're doing and uh, the light that you're putting in the world. So I feel very aligned. So you are a performance coach and a trauma specialist. Can you tell me a little bit about your journey? How did you get there and why did you become a trauma specialist and a performance coach? Probably best me to start with how I ended up doing this work because I think most of us end up in this place from personal experience. So I had quite a difficult childhood. Had a, My father was violent 
um, abusive and that was a very difficult, obviously, place to grow up in, very scary. And as soon as I could, kind of found a, a way to get out of that. And when I was growing up, Sex in the City was the biggest sort of series. And I was like, wow, you know, what's this? That could be my life instead. And the quickest way it seemed to do that from that program, great life choice, was to go into marketing. <laughs> so I did that, but I ended up in property and construction, which is a very heavily male dominated industry. And it was especially so then, like I'm nearly 42. So, you know, me starting work in that industry, this is way before me too. It was very toxically masculine. And I don't want to be unfair to the guys. It's also a hard, hard, hard industry for them to be in as well. In the UK, the construction industry is the biggest industry um, where male suicide is prevalent. So it's tough on everyone. It's it's a difficult place to be. And uh, anyway, but I ended up there and doing my job and working hard and, you know, miss sex in the city. And uh, (laughs) but I hit burnout just before I was coming up to 30. I was very successful. I'd worked relentlessly. I had a really great name in the industry. I earned a terrific salary. I was on, you know, every board within my organization was very well thought of. But I was ill all the time and I didn't know why I you know, did all these things, cut out food groups, tried certain this, that and the other. And I was just continually ill and I didn't know. And what I know now is that I was deeply burnt out and I was burnt out because I was living inauthentically. I was desperately trying to be successful in inverted comments in probably what the the world deems as success. And it wasn't who I was at all. So I had a coaching session, which back then was quite weird. <laughs> like it was a uh, very new. <laughs> it was like, oh, what are you doing coaching for? It's all a bit untrusted, and aren't they the people with dream catchers? And it's like, no, no. And uh, it's a good friend of mine that had just trained, and I remember being so transformed by our session. She did a guided visualization with me that that truly has kind of come true in every way, and I was so uh, taken with that, and it was just so impactful on me that I thought I've got to, I've got to follow this myself. I've got to find out more about it. And so that's what happened. I went into training and coaching myself. I moved and spent time living in North Bay in San Francisco, which is the home of all the coaching schools. I just immersed myself in every kind of modality within coaching. I'm very type A. So if I'm going to do something, I'm going to like do the best, you know, and I wanted to do all the certifications and everything else. But in Doing the training to learn how to become a coach, you also, what they don't tell you, but what's a brilliant byproduct is you really have to learn about yourself. And as a British kind of buttoned up girl that that pushed her vulnerability (laughs) so deeply into the floor to not, not show any emotion working in this industry, to be sat in a coaching room in California, you know, of like, share your feelings. And I was like, oh my God, please, no, don't look at me. Um, but it was the best thing I've ever done. And then that's that's sort of where my, my passion started from. And then the trauma element came on a few years after. So when I was aware that my marriage was coming to an end and uh, or I was aware at that point of cracks in my marriage and I wanted to find ways to positively maybe influence that on myself, EMDR, which is a trauma technique, just kept coming up. I kept seeing it in an article or hearing about it from a friend. And it's still quite innovative, but it was very innovative at the time. And uh, I thought, okay, I need to follow these signs. I'm quite quite witchy-woo. So I thought, right, I need to follow this. Mm-hmm. And I did, and I had that as a therapy for myself. And it was so transformational. 
And then like the coaching, I'm like, I have to know everything about this. So <laughs> I had to fight to get onto a training course because it's quite difficult to do if you come from a, a coaching background, not say a hypnotherapist or in the UK, um, a British counseling path. I had to find ways to get into this certain course, but I did and did all of the training. And then from there, the, the understanding of what happens to you on trauma, if you like, when trauma is happening, was this missing piece of the puzzle, not just for my life, but for all of my clients. And coaching is amazing and I love it. But for me, it stops short unless you can really go into the physiology of what happens to your body and the experience of why you might find yourself in these places. I think coaching is if you're like, I want to change my job or I want a fulfilling relationship and you kind of know what you want amazing. I think the trauma elements really needed when you don't know why you're doing certain things or acting in a certain way and you're feeling shame. So I have a method where I, I pull all of this and the fact I did work in corporate for years and probably my own experiences that I've had as well, including coming out of my marriage and going through divorce and all of these sorts of things and uh, having my daughter, myself, those sorts of things. And uh, that's how I work with clients now. And the performance coaching, yeah, I have, I have clients or candidates in all different kinds of modalities, uh, elite sports, what I'd call elite corporate athletes, um, actors, many, many different modalities, opera singers, you name it. So people that are very much at the top of their game. Um, and then the Instagram platform and TikTok was designed to make it accessible to everybody because I really want to, I'm very, very, very passionate as I think you are about removing privilege mm -hmm. and making it accessible. Mm -hmm. So many things that you just mentioned that I'm like, okay, yes, yes, yes. Let's talk about all of these things. Let's start with what does a performance coach do or who would need a performance coach? Or let's say if I think that I need a performance coach, how would our coaching look like? Sure. So um, if I was going corporate, as an example, you might need a performance coach if you have fear of public speaking. That's quite a common one in the corporate world is that, you know, a lot of people don't feel comfortable performing on a stage. If I looked at golf, I work extensively in golf. It's an, an area that I really like and I've got a lot of experience in. Everyone on that field is technically incredible. You know, mastery is 10,000 hours. You achieve mastery. I mean, these guys and girls are I mean, the training, however long they've been doing it for, they have been doing it for so many hours. But at some point, there becomes a negative relationship around an element of their performance, and it's a mental block. So again, it's an anxiety thing. So what this is, is there's a, a reframe between performance anxiety, which is the normal word that we use, and it's actually a social phobia, which is this reframe that we're looking at now. And a social phobia is when you're, you have a fear around humiliation. So when you think about public speaking, we're not probably afraid of saying words out loud about a subject we really feel passionately about. We're afraid of getting it wrong, falling over, spilling our drink on ourselves, uh, saying something stupid, going blank. And the knock-on of that is I would be humiliated. And the same if I was taking it to the golf course, if it was an element of somebody's game where they should, in inverted commas, be fantastic because they're a technical expert and they're at this level because they're a professional. If they're suddenly not able to do this thing or there's a mental block, then they'll be humiliated. So social phobias are things when we fear the humiliation. Um, people would have these phobias around flying as well. It's often not 
that I'm phobic of the whole experience of flying, there's an element that I'm worried I will humiliate myself, perhaps by getting very upset, or I might have a panic attack if I'm feeling out of control. So that's where somebody might want to work with a performance coach is to really understand what it is that is impacting that performance and how to get past it. For somebody who might be afraid literally of public speaking is there something they can do today to improve their performance i have a lot of girls who are in college and you know speaking in front of a whole class is there something they can do today to kind of yeah there is there's a a very dear friend of mine matt beresford and he is a trained actor on stage in london and also does a um, Mm -hmm. some fantastic coaching and he taught me something which was you can so your body and my big thing is about your body we always listen to your body you know people can say anything trust your instincts trust your body and so he says i'm not going to stand up now to my chair i'll make a racket are you right-handed <laughs> or left-handed? Right hand, I'm right-handed. Okay, so you would typically, if I asked you to stand up and walk, you'd put your right foot forward first. Yeah. Okay. So it's, you know, have you heard the saying, put your best foot forward? Mm-hmm. So if you stand up and you're going to give a speech or anything, if you were to imagine putting your right foot forward, what it does is it tells your body that you're going in to like action. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit like if um, you were going to go and have a fight or I asked you like, do a race and grab that thing off the shelf by you simply even like rocking on that foot, like behind a podium, if you're going to speak, or even just the intention of like putting that foot down, what you're saying to your system is go, let's go. We're in, we're done. So you're taking this action. So just by doing that, that, that movement, it's like we've committed, we're going. And it's giving your whole system and your body, this sense of you know, like the 300, like, Oh, like, here we go. So it's it's a little little adrenaline boost from your body that's going to like go, yes, we're in. Rather than obviously when you're standing there, sweaty hands, pulses like this, you know, we're like, oh, can I, can't I, you're in your head. <laughs> the only way to get out of your head is to get into your body with everything. And so the best way to do that, if, that no one can really see, especially if you're standing up, is just, just to literally, I say, just rock on that foot. And it's like, we go, mm-hmm. you can beat it. I'm ready. I love that. I'm going to do this every single time before, I don't know, any important meeting, any, anything that's, I've never heard about this. And this is so, it's such a small thing that you can do, but I, you're so right. Even when I wake up in the morning, you know how people say like, oh, you got off on the wrong foot. Yeah. (laughs) That's what, yeah. Like you just need to get on your right foot. So let's say that you're in the middle of, let's say presenting into a class and then you feel everything's going great. And then all of a sudden you're like frozen. So Mm -hmm. you suggest just like, come back into your body, take a deep breath and take a deep breath, right foot forward. Even, I mean, and often I invite, I'll often say, you know, don't ever be afraid of saying that you need to catch your breath mm-hmm. or do a breathing moment or invite other people to join you with it. Just say, oh, I'm feeling a bit mm-hmm. overwhelmed or let's take a breath here and, you know, do some nice grounding breaths to get back into our body. Um, you know, my, my daughter, she's six and a half. And when we did a lot of homeschooling things and they have these little, little sort of mind yeti they're called for her school, but you know, a lot Mm -hmm. of it is do the shake shaking or, you know, doing breath counts up and down your fingers and just always into your body. And I love that they're being taught that now as children. And I think we probably Mm -hmm. were like these sayings, but then we don't, Mm -hmm. understand maybe why or utilize them so yeah absolutely if you're feeling that you're freezing in the middle of something breath Mm -hmm. into your system there's also a really nice tapping point which is this is my left hand so in between what Mm -hmm. would be your 
your ring finger and your little finger. There's a little, I've got witchy hands, but there's a little dent just here for people that are, people that are looking, people that are listening. It's in between your ring finger and your little finger and you follow the line down the middle and there's a little point and you put two fingers there and just press and I'm pressing the inside of my palm as well. And you can have that on your lap and you can just be mm-hmm. pressing just to help bring a bit of calm. You can probably feel it into your parasympathetic. I feel like even if you just say in the middle of your presentation, oh, guys, I need a second. I'm a little nervous. It makes you more human. It makes you vulnerable. It makes people can relate to something like that. Completely. There's research as well about uh, swearing, that if you swear in the middle of something that people are more likely to remember. I'm not suggesting that everyone goes around, <laughs> you know, effing and effing and jeffing. There is evidence because it's passion, right? You're putting passion into Mm -hmm. something you're doing and you're being really real. So yeah, never be afraid of being human. I think that's the, that's where I, if I made mistakes, I don't really look at it like that. I look at it as learning, but all I can tell you and your audience is I spent years unpicking layers of armor where I had so deeply buried my femininity and vulnerability to try and cope and that's been the biggest journey for me is getting back into who I truly am and being able to embrace that and being able to share openly so I would always encourage someone to say I'm actually not feeling great right now or I just need to take a minute or oh just give me a sec let me just mm-hmm. check my lines like I've seen people do that millions of times mm-hmm. like, I know I've seen it but I couldn't yeah. tell you who it was and I'm certainly not judging them negatively mm-hmm. speaking of judging somebody negatively we judge ourselves all the time. Mm-hmm. Negative self-talk, limiting beliefs. Can you please explain what are limiting beliefs and how do we eliminate them? Sure. So a negative limiting belief is the language of shame. And it's always I am. So if I give you an example of that, it's shame is something that It's a feeling. It's very, very hard to articulate shame. It's very hard to discuss, give it a language, but it always starts with I am. So let's just say we were talking and you said, how are you? And oh, do you know what? Bit of a rush this morning, doing the school run. I got a bit snappy with my daughter. Didn't do great today. Mm -hmm. I feel quite bad. I feel like a bad mummy. And you might say, oh, you know, that's guilt. If Mm -hmm. I said to you, it didn't go great this morning, I am a bad mother. I feel sick Mm. saying that. I mean, that has Mm -hmm. gone straight to my stomach. It's straight in my throat. I am a bad mother. Like, I don't know what a shame language might be for you. I am unworthy. When I'm doing trauma work with clients, that's what happens. When we experience trauma, we are left with stains of shame. And it's always an I am. And it's always felt. I am unworthy. I am unsafe. I am un out of control, I am a failure, I am Mm -hmm. behind. Unworthy of love is a big one in my audience. Yeah, I'm worthless. I get that all the time. I'm worthless. I am not enough. So all of that living in our systems all the time. And and if you think about that, what we're doing is we're seeing the world out of that lens. Now, I had, I speak Mm -hmm. about it quite often, I had a, a attempted burglary when I was much younger and I went into the freeze stress response and what it told me in that oh, moment, I remember hmm. I remember you were talking about that okay yes can you please share that story of course yeah gladly so I think I was 20 it must have been 20 years ago I was 21 I was living in mm. London on my sex necessity mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it was early one morning in the summer 
remember that. And I heard this scratching by my then bedroom wardrobe. And I thought my flatmate had cats. And I thought, oh, my goodness, mm-hmm. cats in the wardrobe. Half asleep, probably been out the night before, very young. You know, and mm-hmm. I sort of got up and staggered towards the wardrobe, opened the door. Cat wasn't in there, but the scratching was really loud. And I was like, oh, my gosh, where is this cat? Anyway, there was a window in the, in London. We have these beautiful sash windows in old houses, these double height windows. So I went half asleep again to the, to the window and I pulled back my curtains where I could hear this scratching. And there was a man stood the other side of the window pane with his face the same level as mine, probably two inches apart. And I was so, I feel it now, I was so afraid. I was so afraid that I froze. So in trauma, we have five responses. We have fight, go in and punch them, flight, run, freeze, which is what I did, just literally freeze on the spot, flop, pass out, or fawn, which is where we placate. So more like a narcissistic partner, victims of domestic abuse, something, sexual assault, we might we might fawn. So that's, that's me giving you those five examples. So I'm stood in, in freeze. I'm literally frozen to the spot in absolute fear, can't do a thing. Now, something must have happened. There must have been some kind of noise or something. I know he was saying to me, sorry, love, sorry, love, but he was still trying to get the window up. And my flatmate came running in. Who did the things that I wish I'd done? Banged on the window, swore at him, ran down the stairs, chased the guy. And all this time I was like, oh my, oh my God. You know, like I, it was just so shocking. The police came later. He'd been wearing gloves. It was all planned. And they were like, oh, he's just a local burglar nothing to worry about your luck. nothing to worry about <laughs> nothing to worry about yeah. you're lucky like he wasn't coming to attack me apparently just get some electronics and mm-hmm. you're lucky so you come away and a, one a figure of authority has told me I'm lucky so you're like oh well mm-hmm. I better accept good girl oh, you know okay I'm lucky mm-hmm. fine I believe you the other thing it told me my I am statement from that because I froze was that I would respond to any scary thing in the future like that. And my response, my shame language was, I am helpless, I am hopeless, and I am weak. And from 21 to 36, when I had that taken out of my system with EMDR, I lived my life believing that about myself, that if I was faced with another situation that that was life or death in my mind, you know, a, a, a survival mm-hmm. mode decision, I'm helpless, hopeless, and weak. So I chose relationships, probably jobs, everything in my life from that place. And when you have EMDR or trauma work, these underlying limiting beliefs, or even you get a handle on the shame language for yourself, you're asking about your listeners, and I'm aware that not everyone can get access to that. When we Mm -hmm. dig down to what the shame language is, you can really try and understand and reframe what you'd rather believe about yourself instead. And for me... It was I am brave. I would started when I started the MDR work. I my husband and I at the time had separated, so I'm living alone with my daughter, and I'm you know noises and bangs and crashes around the house, and it's my responsibility to keep us both safe. I didn't want to live like that or parent her from a position of being helpless, hopeless, and weak. So during my own journey of working on myself. I had that removed and that's what we do in EMDR. And now my belief, my lens I see the world through is I am brave. And it's a very different place with all things to choose and operate. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we see the world from our I am shame language. What about women who talk negatively about their physical appearance? 
I'm mm. ugly. I'm fat. I'm not worthy of a partner because I look a certain way. I have a lot of friends who even come to me and they're like, you're so confident. You, how do you love yourself that much? And they are, and they're just, they're just constantly talking negatively about themselves, like physically, how can they work on that approach? I think there's two parts to that. I mean, I'd love to ask you because they're your friends, mm -hmm. you know, be quite heartbreaking for you to hear that to hear them talk about themselves in that way it's i i have a specific friend in mind and i um the other day i was at her house and she was just saying oh i'm so stupid i'm so fat i don't i don't i'm so and i'm like how can you speak like that to yourself i never really spoke to myself that way so it was crazy for me to even hear somebody saying I mean, I have my own limiting beliefs about, you know, worthiness and being enough and stuff like that. But I never really talked negatively about my, I don't know, I'm ugly. I am, I'm, I don't know. And I didn't even know what to say to her because she's obviously not ugly. She's beautiful. She, I mean, I think everybody's beautiful. I just didn't even know how to deal with that when somebody came to me with, you know, I, I was literally sending her morning affirmations. This is what you need to tell yourself every single day. This is how you need to speak to yourself in the mirror. I said, I know this might sound a little weird looking at yourself in the mirror and telling yourself that you're beautiful, but just try. You have nothing to lose. Yeah, I love that. I love that you said that. And I could feel your love for her as well in, in that. And it's very difficult mm -hmm. when we hear people we love talking about themselves like that. It's interesting because you listening to your friend saying that is heartbreaking for you. And you're like, I can't understand or believe mm -hmm. you think that about yourself because you, you're all of these wonderful things and I want mm -hmm. you to validate yourself and you beautifully gave her some techniques to do that. The reality mm -hmm. is if I wrote down all the things that go through my head and the things that go through your head, they'd be awful about myself. You know, like mm -hmm. I'm jet lagged I'm tired I've been I've made a bit of a mistake with booking some um, time zones in like last night for a client mm -hmm. so I ended up finishing work at 11 p.m and <laughs> and I you know I've got a young daughter I get up early with her and I'm really tired and I, I have not been my best self with her and you know the things going through my head are like you've done you're done badly there you need to you know step it up like this isn't great you're not uh, you know, I haven't made as much effort with my, you look beautiful. I haven't made as much effort with my appearance today. You know, there's all these sorts of things that go through mm -hmm. my head. And so if we, if we put our negative self talk to any of our friends, they'd be like, I cannot believe that you, that you think that about mm -hmm. yourself. I don't see it. But again, to your point, the only way we can find our way home is by really finding what we think is, is worthiness to ourselves. And, it's heartbreaking that your friend said that she felt she was stupid and fat as well, because that to me sounds yeah. like not her language. So this is the other thing is, is it a belief that, of yours that you've generated yourself or is it mm -hmm. something that you've maybe been given at some point, like maybe an unskillful parent or family member or um, someone at school that was mean to you? Is it genuinely something that is yours and you believe or is this something that you've taken on? either that someone said to you or a bit of an I should. And I mean, social media is an obvious one, but is there a, you know, I could look at it and be like, oh, well, I should be married and I don't know, have kids and all this sort of stuff and at my age or whatever it might be. And, you know, by like, obviously, you know, social media is, is wonderful mm -hmm. for so many things, including our connection, but that's not mine. That's me comparing mm -hmm. myself to a society of people that I don't even know. 
Um, and I think I think that's that's also a two part is what's hers that she really fundamentally believes about herself, because that definitely can be changed. And what's some stuff she's like collecting or taking on, which usually lives within the world of should. Uh, and should to me is a massive swear word that we need to get rid of because we've all got this huge pile of shoulds and it never makes anyone happy. And that, that sounds like some shoulding from her there. Yeah, I was about to ask this negative uh, self-talk, does it always come from a trauma or is it something, I'm just trying to think when I, when I had my, I had my fair share of mental uh, health issues and luckily I'm totally out of that. But I, I think that my, my relationship at that point, I mean, my previous relationship was like this guy that I was dating, he was telling me that I am all these things that I'm unworthy, that I'm never going to be with somebody else, that nobody's ever going to love me. So I know that that came from that relationship, but is it maybe also it comes from, I don't know, bullies in school or maybe trolls online. It doesn't always have to come from ourselves. Totally. I want to ask you a question about that. And I hope you'll forgive me because it's for the goodness Mm -hmm. of the listenership. But no, obviously, go ahead. He was saying, obviously what he was saying to you is completely unacceptable and, and cruel and damaging. Mm-hmm. Was it more damaging what he said to you or was it more damaging your own self-betrayal, like sort of staying there and, and like having, but beginning to believe these things about yourself and moving away from your, your authentic self, if you like? At that moment when this was going on, I couldn't believe that somebody that claims that they love me so much would do something like that to me. And because I trusted them and because I knew that they actually loved me, I started believing that because I'm like, he knows me the best. So he knows what I deserve. And it was more like, how can you do this to me? Mm. And I guess it might be true if you were doing it to me because you know me so well. I think that's what was going on in my head back then. Yeah, so there's two things is what I'm hearing. There was a disconnection of, of yourself from your true self and that he must know you better. So therefore that narrative mm-hmm. then becomes your own. And I think that's where exactly to your point, can it happen in schools? Yeah, because you go in feeling a certain way about yourself and someone else. Maybe it is even a teacher, a parent, a uh, you know, people, different society that we're associated with, family members, and you, you're skipping along one day and then someone says something and you're knocked off your centre and you go, oh, well, maybe that's true. And mm-hmm. and then that starts unravelling because obviously then we've had a knock to our confidence. But the negative self-talk, in in my opinion, there are also times that we are much more susceptible to it. And that's when self-care, I think, is a very banded around statement. And probably people listening just going, oh, God, not self-care. And no, I'm not talking about bubble bath and candles. What I mean is the found, keeping your foundations and your like defenses strong. As in, right now, I would be much more susceptible to taking on negativity and thinking negatively about myself. I've had not much sleep. It was interrupted last night. Um mm-hmm. I've traveled, I've got a bit of jet lag, I've got a lot of work on like really fun stuff. But again, I've made a few time zone errors this week in my diary. So there, there isn't a renewal or recovery until the weekend. So it's kind of a bit of a, a bit of a marathon this week. And um, I would be open to feeling more negatively about myself because my sleep's not there. Therefore, I haven't got as much time or as much energy to do the other things that are important to me for my mental health, like exercise, that we all know about but the things that I know intrinsically make me feel good including having some 
evenings off even I haven't got that this week so I'm much more open to feeling to receiving some of that negative self-talk or even receiving some things externally whereas when I'm really shored up and I've got my foundations in place and I'm feeling good and also the other thing I'd like to say is when I've done something that I know is is purposeful so if I've done work with a charity that I do work with for veterans of the armed forces for example if I've done a particularly impactful session did a really beautiful one on Monday that was transformative for the client, like truly after years of suffering. I could have walked down the high street where I live and someone could have said anything to me that day and I would have been like brushing it off because I mm-hmm. was living my purpose. So I would say though that to me is self-care. Am I living, am I doing the things I know I need to do to at least be like level? And then am I doing the things I need to do to be filling my cup, which to me is living very purposefully and authentically. And when I'm doing all of that, I have like a natural, um, I was going to say natural armor, but that's the wrong word. I have an, a natural sort of power that I I really don't mind if, uh, you know, there's negativity directed towards me genuinely, like being trolled or something like that. And also my own inner critic isn't going to get anywhere near me because it knows I'm busy doing that. Now, Tomorrow, by tomorrow night, my inner critic will be absolutely in my ear because I'll be, you know, tired, longer week, everything else. And it'll be there go having an absolute field day with me. So, yeah, I would say it's also susceptible depending on to me. It's always a good indicator of whether I'm looking after myself well or not, how much I'm listening to that voice. OK, I have a question when it comes to taking care of ourselves. So let's say that we know that some things make us feel much better going to the gym, meditating, eating healthy, but we still sometimes choose not to do them. Even though we know going to the gym for 20 minutes, an hour, whatever is going to change your entire day. If we're aware that something makes us feel better, we still don't do that. So you just described beautifully. Um, do you listen to Andrew Huberman's podcast at all? I'm sure like, yes. Yeah. So he, mm-hmm. did, he did one of his podcasts, I think it was the end of last year, if anyone wants to look it up. And it was about happiness. And it was fascinating because basically it was exactly what you just described. And it's when we make a decision and we just do it, we're not burning down, if you like, our reserves of energy or our happiness. When we go into the Oh, I could go to the gym today. Oh, maybe I'll do Pilates instead. Oh, maybe I'll get, tell you what, I'll have a coffee first and then I'll do this. Oh, I'll just do some journaling. I'll go later. What I'll do is I'll do a run tonight instead. Well, I've missed that now and the traffic's here, so I won't do that. And then we all know that by the end of the day, we're sat on the sofa, we're not doing any of the above and we feel terrible about ourselves. And it's because we've used up the energy, if you like, and we've actually and actively depleted our happiness. So if I'm working with some of my players, I'll, I'll just pick golf again. But with golfers they know what they're doing they've played that shot thousands of times every shot wherever the ball lands now if they are going into a place of oh well i i could hit it here i could do this or i could do that rather than you know three iron down there it's going to go whatever it might be that they've done a million times over when they maybe start you know going into uh, 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 decision fatigue they're actively depleting their energy they're going to disrupt their performance and they're going to really start having a difficult time there and then it starts you know becoming a bigger thing so this exactly as you described is why we you know people are saying it's such a big fan of routine and the whole have you gym kit out the night before know where you're going so you're literally not even thinking about it so why is it that sometimes we don't i think we end up maybe i think we're probably tired it's probably a good indication mm-hmm. that we are a bit flat and then 
it's to me, I'm like, right, well, how do we strip the engine further? So if I am tired, what can I get out? Like, do I just go and do that workout? Because to your point, that is the thing that's going to make me feel the best. Or am I just going to take that out of my diary? Because actually a walk and brunch with a really great girlfriend and connection is what I need today and rest, but with complete permission to do that and have that day. And then tomorrow my gym kit's laid out and da, 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 da. But it's the, it's the, it's like, oh, I could, I, I should, I could. It, it's that that is actively, genuinely depleting our happiness reserves and then it's almost like harder to get back on the horse from there. What about food? I am really trying to eat super healthy, but it's still sometimes I just, you know, knock out an entire chocolate, candy, order a pizza. And obviously you should indulge in food sometimes, but some people do it a little too often. Mm-hmm. What would you say to them? Uh, obviously, Obviously, being very careful here completely depends because I do work with people with disordered eating patterns and uh, who mm-hmm. really struggle with their eating for a variety of reasons. And the work that I do, it's most often founded in childhood in some way. Um, usually when people are doing something to an extreme, whatever it might be. So let's say it's food, exercise, drugs, alcohol, sex, work. You know, that's a, that's an exit mm-hmm. people take. Oh, I've got to work. I've got to stay at work. You're still choosing not to be present in your life. It's not necessarily a great thing. Social media. Mm-hmm. I ask clients, I say, are you using this thing? It's one of two reasons. Are you using it to feel more or are you using it to feel less? Because sometimes we use something to check out. And mm-hmm. sometimes if we're going to call it a binge or if we're just calling it like going into a cycle of, mm-hmm. of uh, stepping off the routine or whatever it might be, we're, we're often doing it to check out actually, because we, we want to feel numb or we want to go to somewhere else. And that's the reason that people tend to use something. Either they want to feel, they want to feel aliveness, they want to feel something, risky behavior, or they want to stop feeling. So they're trying to become numb. So that is where I would encourage the inquiry around whatever behavior or activities mm-hmm. that we might do that they're not feeling good about. You know, if you, if you, like you say, you're having a Sunday and you go, do you know what? I just want to eat ice cream, be with my girlfriend, yeah. Have, a, yeah, yeah. Yeah, have a glass of wine at lunch, have a terrific time, go dancing. And that was brilliant. And I wake mm-hmm. up the next day feeling fulfilled and back in my routine, like terrific. Mm-hmm. If you're doing something where you don't feel good about it at the time and also the next day, then that's where to make that inquiry. And is it something that is giving you a high of some kind, like, as I say, like this feeling of aliveness, or is it something that is allowing you to check out of your reality? And both of those things obviously need a bit of a deeper dive as to what what that's giving you Mm -hmm. and why. Would you compare that with self-sabotage at all? Interestingly, it can be. So there's a beautiful book I'd recommend that everyone reads called The Big Leap by a guy called Gay Hendricks. And he talks about this thing called your upper limit. So again, good old childhood trauma, but we go back to beliefs in childhood. So when I was growing up, my beliefs that I would have heard all the time, my parents, society, all sorts would have been things like, you've got to work hard, work is hard, you know, it's hard to make money. Keeping money is really hard. It's really hard to have money. Um, and also things like everyone's favorite. That sounds too good to be true. Well, you can't mm-hmm. have it. You know, that sounds too good to be true. You, that, there's got to be something wrong you with it. You can't that. have it all. Can't have it all. Right. So then what happens is 
we start having it all. And then you're like, you know, I've, I've got my house and I've got my girl and I've got nice life and I travel and I've got my business and I've got everything else. And then you start maybe, and I train and, you know, and then you start going, oh, well, I can't have it all. Like this belief kicks in or, oh, well, I better not spend that money because it's hard to keep money or it'll be really mm-hmm. hard for you to make money. So we, what I'm doing is I'm hitting my upper limit. It's like I've literally, I'm, I'm triggering this point, which then goes, oh God, well, you don't want to fail because fail is awful and drop, it's so much worse to drop from a height. Don't drop from a height. So what you should do is you should just bring yourself down to about there. Let's just self-sabotage enough that, yeah, like, so say you'd say you someone's going to lose 20 pounds and they get to within the last five and they've been super strict and they're loving it and they're brilliant. They're like, oh, I'll just have a glass of wine and that glass of wine turns into a weekend of margaritas and nachos and you know whatever else and yes because you started approaching the upper limit and often these underlying limiting beliefs kick in about you know not having it all and then that's when we start to self-sabotage so yes absolutely it can be linked to that as well okay what about imposter syndrome i didn't even know that was a a term until Mm. I started working in the self-development space and started learning about many things, but I feel like I felt imposter syndrome a long time growing up because I moved to the US when I was 22. My family's mm-hmm. all back in Croatia and I was doing everything on my own. And I just didn't really, I, I didn't really know where I belong. And I was a little, I mean, obviously confused in your twenties, but can you speak a little more on imposter syndrome? What it is, if somebody sure. doesn't, maybe they don't, maybe they're feeling it, but they don't know they're yeah. feeling imposter syndrome. I haven't been able to give it a name. The thing I will say about imposter syndrome that I truly believe is this is this is the thing that unites us all, truly. Like every client that I have, no matter what they do, and usually the most successful. So usually we're talking about self-made billionaires, CEOs of banks, sports people, everyone has imposter syndrome. And I also think imposter syndrome is linked to when we're having success in particular. So when we're younger and we're climbing, you know, I don't know about you, when you were in Croatia, before you made the move to the US, you're probably saving up, you're getting excited, you're researching, you're like, I can't wait to get there, I'm going to do all these things. Like you're climbing, you know, the same as if you're in a job, you know, kind of like entry level, maybe one up, you're like, I can't wait to be like, a manager and then you get to the manager you're like I can't wait to be the leader you know you're chasing and you're you're more risky when you're playing sports when you before you become professional when you're an amateur again you're taking risks like you don't become a, a terrific sports person unless you are prepared to you know play it quite risky to a sense because you've got to get these fantastic scores but again I'm talking about golf but you know you've got to stand out from the rest you've got a there's big competition for a few places whatever the sport might be you're going to go into so you've got to stand out so you're you're taking chunks out of the competition you're hungry you're chasing that's one energy you're outward then what i've seen happens is that people maybe get a few things or you get to the place that you wanted to and all of a sudden whether it's your upper limit or whatever else you go i don't want to lose this And that is a very different lens. And success starts to make you a bit more conservative because all of a sudden we're going out into the world going perhaps for yourself. Well, I'm here now. I've got the, I've just, I've managed to get the apartment that I like and I've got a job and I've made some nice friends and I'm I'm feeling a bit more like myself. And I've, and then you don't want to lose it. You don't want to make a mistake somewhere or mess up because that would mean, Oh, who do you think you are? 
this is imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Who on earth do you think you are? Off you go, back to your childhood home. You don't deserve any of this. This was never going to last. This isn't for you. This is for someone else. And it's as if a little imposter is living with us all the time because they are. And it just fails to read our CV. So this is a way of dealing with it. So we're in this position truly because we earned it. And by that, I mean, if you look at the hours that you've put into something, if you look at the, do you know what, maybe there have been a few lucky breaks, but you created them. Well, I've had lucky breaks in my life, but because I put myself in the position to receive them, you know, I put you put yourself out there, you changed country, you had to build all of your relationships and, you know, everything that you've done. And that's scary and nerve wracking, but you did it. But then we get to this point where we start having some of the things that we dreamed of. And that's when our imposter seems to get all of its energy. And it's because we've got something that we don't want to lose. So that's when we start getting more conservative because we've got suddenly we're not as happy to maybe take these huge risks that we were before as we were growing because we're trying to hold on instead of not fail. And that's a very different energy. And that's when this imposter comes in and maybe starts comparing us to other people or being like, oh, you don't deserve any of this or this isn't going to last. Or, yeah, who do you think you are? Mm -hmm. That's another one. And, oh, you know, the fraud police will come around and arrest you for pretending to know it all in this area. But... Anyone that we admire doesn't know it all. The smartest people in the world actively say that they read every single day to enhance their learning because they don't know it all. You know, nobody, we just talked at the very beginning about we get nervous maybe about public speaking because what if we forget our words? Everyone does, you know, and then that's uh, what makes it better and makes you more human by saying that. So all of these things are sort of what the imposter is trying to do is it, it appears more when you're having more success because you've understandably accumulated things, people, places that mean something to you and that you want and that you don't want to lose. But it can change that energy from that sort of hunting to, to trying to hold on instead. And it's a very different place to be coming from. So you said that we have this little imposter living in us. Mm. You also mentioned at some point in your content about ego and that yeah. ego is ego is can become your amigo. Yes. Please tell me about ego and why it's you said it's basically like a friend who's trying to hold you back. If I'm getting yeah, that right. So- uh, this is this is my belief system. I should probably paint it. But uh, yeah, I truly believe from years and years and years of work that your ego, your inner critic, imposter syndrome is is next door to it. We'll, we'll give it. We'll put it kind of together. Your saboteur, the judge, devil on your shoulder. You know all the names we might give to it. It is a well-meaning friend that has got it wrong. So if we go back to, again, the body, like everything really starts in our physiology. If we understand our physiology, we understand the, the actions that we're taking on the outside and the thoughts that we're also having in our behaviors. And going back years and years and years, if we were living together in community for survival, basic survival needs, food, water, heat, uh, that's we needed to be connected as a group. Now, if you and I were living together in community and connected and I did something that was not allowed, right? It was terrible, made a terrible mistake or did something awful. And I was ostracized. If I was sent out from the group, I would die. 
because we relied on this community, this network for survival. Now, my physiology today, I live here on my own with my daughter and it's fine. But my software, my internal physiology has not had the upgrade that tells me that I'm okay doing that. So naturally, what I want to do is make sure that I'm not ostracized. I'm not rejected from any groups. Now that leads to people pleasing and that leads to being wearing a mask and being inauthentic. And all of that leads to this, this ego, this inner critic going, Oh, don't say that. Don't do that. Don't, don't take that risk. Don't do that job. Don't do that podcast. Don't move to that country. Don't say that thing because they might judge you. Don't, no, 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 no. Like, don't ask for what you need. Oh, don't tell them that. They won't like it. Why don't you try and be more like them? You know, fit in with them. That's what everyone likes. You know, how many people have liked that mm. thing? Oh, you've made a fool of yourself. It's doing it to keep you safe. It's doing mm. it to keep you connected. It's doing it because it believes that if you're not connected, this is what I mean, it's a very, very old physiology that you're at risk. And there's a study, a very famous study when human fears were evaluated and the number one fear was not death, death ranked at number seven or something like that. The number one fear of humans is rejection, to be rejected. And it's Mm -hmm. this old inherent belief that if we're rejected, if we're without community, if we're without connection, we cannot survive. So this is where our inner critic, bless it, our ego, is trying to do its work of holding us to be connected and not make mistakes and not make errors. And like I say, people please and just sort of be in the middle lane somewhere where we just fit in, you know, and we're, we're accepted and we're okay. But what's happening is it's, it is affecting us and it's not a nice thing to listen to all the time. And it's trying to keep us within our comfort zone. And if you've ever done anything, like probably when you moved, I would imagine mm-hmm. your inner critic would have been really loud and giving you a lot of different messages like, oh, but what if this happens? Or what if that happens? Or you haven't thought about this. Tell you what, don't do it. It, it could come in sometimes to the gym that you mentioned earlier. Oh, mm-hmm. don't do that. It's too hard, that class. Or you, I know you've wanted to try that class for ages, but actually, mm-hmm. why don't you do this thing that we've done loads instead before? Because it, mm-hmm. it might be too difficult. Or we'll go on Thursday instead. Because it doesn't want you to make a fool of yourself. It doesn't want you to be rejected. So I personally do an exercise with clients where we go into conversation with your inner critic. We literally have a conversation with your inner critic and we find out why it's afraid and what it's afraid of and what it needs you to stop doing and what it promises it will stop doing. And we create partnership from there. Like I truly believe we can make our inner critic, our ego, our biggest cheerleader. And I've done it hundreds of times now with people and it's always incredibly impactful and incredibly successful so yes i have a, a slightly different belief system just that our software needs an update we're, we're running on old mm-hmm. software to where we live today and we can if we give our inner critic our ego the space and really listen and go into communication with it we can change that dynamic in that relationship with them i love listening to you speak i feel oh, like i can you. just I wish I live in London so I can just go all of your workshops and all that. Um, I have just a few more questions when it comes to relationships, because that's what I obviously talk mostly on my socials. I'd love to. Red flags. Why do we ignore them? That is a great question. I think, and I also think there's a bit of beauty in that because I think we hope 
And I don't want to tell people not to hope. I think we, I read this beautiful, I think it was a post on Instagram and uh, it was about you, you can keep your heart soft if you keep your boundaries strong. And I try and live my life like that. Like have an open heart, have a soft, hopeful, beautiful, open heart in all of your relationships. Please don't close, but do have good boundaries. And again, in this this book, The Big Leap, I'd really recommend it. He touches on relationship as well. He says that other people are the thing that makes us hit our upper limit the quickest. We get high from another person and we upper limit really, really quickly. And the way to maintain autonomy, if you like to be able to, to come back down and kind of ground, is to make sure that you're having time by yourself just to sort of check in and rebalance your system if you like because especially in early stages with all the chemistry and everything we are upper limiting you know like a pinball machine so I think there is also so there's something in the hope and so I would encourage people if you're unsure take time there is no rush and uh, I can say that genuinely as a single woman of nearly 42 Mm -hmm. like my life is great there really is no rush um and then I also appreciate the privilege that I have, by the way, of having my daughter. So I'm not saying that people mm-hmm. that maybe want a family, I'm fully aware of how lucky I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for romantic relationship, there really is no rush. And the other thing I would say is about making sure you have boundaries. That's not to keep people out. That's just to allow enough time to process, you know, the person and get to know somebody. I mean, there's a reason you have a three-month probation period in most jobs, I think, to make sure there's a good fit <laughs> both ways, you know. The other thing I would say about red flags is it's a bit like trauma. Whenever anything's happened, if I look at my own personal life, and I'm going to ask you the question as well, there's a moment in time and I know it in that moment. And I think, ooh, and it bookmarks somewhere in me. Mm-hmm. And I think, hmm, that's interesting. Or, you know, that's, that's a bit off. I have never been wrong. Sure enough, whether it's a month, two months, three months later, you have that moment when the floor moves from underneath you and you are taken back to that thought that you went, oh, you know, that you logged at that time. So I would say watch for your system again. Your system is never usually wrong. And there's the the right person will be absolutely fine with you taking time, being curious, using the lens of curiosity is very different to judgment. Curiosity is a playful, happy, light, open energy. Be curious about yourself. Why am I having this reaction to this person? Is it because they're opening up parts of me that I haven't had before and that's really positive? Or am I being triggered and this is actually taking me away from myself? What do I need in this moment? You know, Everyone comes in with stuff, especially when you're dating mm-hmm. older. There's a lot of stuff that comes in. So it's not to judge somebody else, but it's just to really stay curious. And that keeps the energy a lot lighter and, and to hold that space. And like I say, keep please stay hopeful. Keep your hearts open, but have some boundaries in there. Not iron walls, but boundaries. Mm-hmm. If you have boundaries, but your partner keeps on crossing those boundaries... But then you think, but I love them so much. Everything is amazing. They just don't understand that this is really my boundary. For example, when you have a partner that just like comes home after work and they just talk about work all the time, all the time, and you maybe don't even care about their work, you know, How, and then you tell them five times, please stop talking about work when you get home, but they keep on doing it. And at some point you're, and then you explode. And they're like, yo, I'm just talking about work. Like, it's not no big deal. But you try to implement that boundary so many times. In that example, when 
uh, obviously it's kind of, it sounds like it's more irritating and might build resentment than something sort of threatening mm-hmm. or, or too dangerous. And you just, you prefer that they didn't. I mean, one thing to look at is love language because maybe theirs is words of affirmation. They just need to talk, talk, talk. And then perhaps you can get them to, we can look at designing in another way to talk or if your um, love language is quality time or let's understand that. And then you can design in a system. So maybe it's the, if they go off and have a shower, as soon as they get in, they might level out or let's go on a walk as soon as you get back. And then we can kind of talk it outside of the house. That's like a practical thing. The other thing, mm-hmm. I actually was listening to Alexandra Solomon yesterday and she said, this is a bit of a life hack, I think, um, a partner will make a change not depending on what it is that you've both agreed to. This is from couples therapy. But she said they make a change depending on your reaction. So let's say you've said to your partner, listen, I love you but I really don't like us talking about your work. As soon as you come in the door, I find it overwhelming. It's like not my love language. Rah, 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 rah. And they're open. He said, like, what I'd prefer to do instead is, and then we, we have to do what good would look like. So good would look like you come in, we go out for a walk, or we, or we don't discuss things until after we've made dinner or something like that. Now, when they do that, the thing that you've both agreed to, you have to, it's your reaction that makes the change. When you're like, oh my God, darling, I love tonight so much. Um, what a difference it made. Or they can just see your happiness or mm-hmm. you know, they can receive something a little bit more because they've been like, uh, you know, you're more connected or whatever it might be. That is the trigger that will make them continue to make that change. So asking, great. Talking about it, brilliant. Co-designing in, always, always go for what does good look like because what good looks like to me is very different to what good because so they might be like i didn't talk about work you're like you literally went mm-hmm. on about five minutes straight They're like oh god you should hear me with my mother i do it for an hour you know so make sure that you're both on the same page of what good looks like and then it's really important like the icing on the cake to, to cement this change is that you positively reaffirm it with your reaction and again it's quite a physical thing so they'll look at your face they'll look at your body language and they'll look at you receiving this new change and that's the way to get get it embedded okay amazing i will uh definitely try to implement that because that was a, a personal situation <laughs> <laughs> one question that i get always from my audience when they end the relationship and they think they want them back but basically they they want i think they like the idea of a relationship of the idea of that partner they don't really miss that relationship because it obviously didn't work Mm -hmm. you speak about being lonely after relationships yeah how do what is the difference between feeling lonely and missing that partner actually can you just speak a little more what happens in our brain after we end our relationship Of course. Yeah. So again, it's brain body connect. So this, when we go back to what I was talking about with imposter syndrome and the inner critic, what's happening is our attachment system, which is different to our attachment styles. So I'm sure your audience know all about very well. Mm-hmm. Our attachment system again is firing and it's saying, no, 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 you can't be outside of the group. In this case, the group being a partner, you're not safe on your own. You know, we talked about it to be alone is to be isolated is to be at risk mean certain death from those times. And we haven't updated this internal software. Our physiology still thinks the same thing. It doesn't understand that we can live happily alone now, you know, maybe forever and be safe. So what's happening is your the, the system itself, your system is is screaming for you to reattach because to be attached means more safety and we need connection and community. So 
Absolutely, people are ending relationship because the relationship isn't right. Practically, we're probably missing the unwinding of your person and that person habit. A lot of it's habit. You know, you used to send a message to that person or call them at a certain time of day. So there's that as well. But the chemical, the body, the thing that's going on that we don't understand, that yearning for that person, even though you're like, I didn't really like them or it wasn't even very good. But why am I missing them so much? It's because our systems feel that we're safer to be attached than alone. And I think just when you know that, and then you can do some grounding work, some breathing exercises, whatever it may be, it's much easier for you to get back into your body again and go, oh, okay, yeah, it, it wasn't a great relationship. And a great rela- and another good thing to do is to write a list of um, the top, I'd go top 10 things that were not great about them and be really honest. Mm-hmm. And usually you get to about number three and you're like, oh, yeah used to you know his mother or whatever whenever you miss them go back to that list and just remind yourself of that list absolutely i would just love i would just love for you to uh speak on the um, uh, domestic violence and great sex life what you started when my laptop so yeah sure there's um so emily nagowski's written an incredible book called come as you are which is touches on sexual assault but it also is i would recommend that everyone reads it it's a truly incredible book and really insightful And she talks about the shame that people may feel, uh, including that uh, there's a lot that you you wouldn't know. For example, you can orgasm whilst being sexually assaulted. That doesn't mean you're enjoying Mm -hmm. it. Of course you're not. This is the fawn system that I talked about earlier in fight, flight, freeze, flop and fawn. You are so terrified, but your body will take over and do anything to keep you alive. In this instance, the fawning response, having an orgasm during sexual assault would be to keep you safe and keep you alive and keep you connected. And in her book, again, she touches on victims of domestic violence, often reporting having exceptional sex lives. And you think, well, how can that be possible? And to them, again, they must be thinking, well, how deeply confusing. I'm in this violent, scary, romantic relationship with this person, but yet I'm having this terrifically pleasurable time. How can this be possible? And imagine the shame you would feel and you'd be so Mm. confused. And we're shown, you know, Disney films when you get butterflies and you meet a prince and you go, oh, amazing. And so it must be great. And if I went on a date and we were chatting and you went, how did it go, darling? And I went, oh, do you know what? He was amazing. He ticked every box. And we had a kiss and you went, and? And I went, oh, there was no spark. And you go, oh, oh, well. And we do need (laughs) some chemistry, but it's not, necessarily a good thing when it's so much chemistry and if I ask you and all the audience listening of often the strongest chemistry was probably not with the best person was probably not with the best partner and it's because our system again needs to level things out because it wants us to be attached so in the case of victims of domestic violence it's a bit of the fawn response absolutely but also because our system this outdated system of needing us to be connected and in community because somehow that's safer than us being on our own. This is very, very outdated prehistoric system, as I say. It's driving us for attachment. So what it does is the relationship is shitty, excuse my French, it's crap, it's, you know, it's violent, it's unsafe, it's awful. So it must turn up the dial. It's yin and yang. It has to balance out somewhere. So that's how it balances out. People have affairs. The sex is incredible because they're not yours. You don't have the mm-hmm of the contained romantic relationship there's also the element that you don't get to see their socks on the floor and you know so it's erotic for longer but but they're not yours but the gravitational pull of keeping you together the attachment is there so it's a really fascinating concept of when some people will be listening going oh but it was the sex was amazing even though he didn't <laughs> 
have a look into it. And if someone's struggling and, and wondering about some of these things, please read that book. I, I won't have done anywhere near as good a job as she does at explaining it. But it's uh, for anyone that's living with any shame around understanding some of this, because I know a lot of people do. Well, how can it be this and be that? Please, I really encourage you to, to read that book and find out some more about it. Our system yeah. is incredibly clever. But it doesn't. I'm gonna. Really I'm gonna write it in the show notes so they oh, can. Do. Yeah, Emily yeah. Amazing. Okay, one final question because I would love to keep you on my podcast for hours and hours. Uh, <laughs> one final question: Why are women afraid to ask for what they want? Oh, I actually had this conversation with a male friend of mine not so long ago, and he was not complaining, shall we say, but he's like, why? You know, I was dating this girl and I, and she said she wanted all of these things. And then a couple of months in, sure enough, she did not want any of these things and had a big argument. And that was the end of the relationship. And I have been on so many courses and so much training and work with so many people. And it's the consistent theme is that we are afraid to ask for what we want. And I think it all goes back to this fear of rejection. Because if I, and it also goes back to, Again, the messaging, be a good girl, don't make a fuss, Mm -hmm. don't make a scene, don't be too big. Oh, you don't want to ask for too much. Who do you think you are? Are you a diva? You know, the messaging is Mm -hmm. never positive about strong women, really. You know, there's a few female role models like Beyonce that we all think are wonderful and, and, you know, universally we think she's terrific, which she is. But most strong or outspoken women come with a a layer of some sort of negativity associated with it. And you have these messages about not making a fuss, not making a scene, being a good girl, fitting in, you know, being polite, not making a fuss. And so it becomes Mm -hmm. very difficult for us to say what we want. But, and it's again, this inner critic, this ego trying to keep us connected, people pleasing, you know, so we become a chameleon. We try and intuit or learn about so we observe and learn someone else's needs first and present ourselves in that way I've got so many friends that suddenly are like oh I'm really into doing outdoor pursuits and you're like really like I've never seen you do that in your life but you know so yeah it's it's and actually perversely and conversely when I speak to male friends they say there is nothing more attractive than a woman that knows what she wants there's nothing more attractive than a woman that walks into a bar and says you know what I really want a glass of champagne not oh I'll have whatever you're having you know there's nothing Mm -hmm. more attractive than a woman that orders two desserts and has a spoonful of each and goes that was exactly what I wanted there is it's seductive it's incredible it just shows that you know who you are and what you want and the other layer of that is there is no layer you're you are showing up as yourself and you're allowing someone to get to know you as yourself and you're also allowing yourself to get to know this person as yourself rather than pretending we're all the things and then three months down the line like my friend going oh it all comes out this big boiling bubble of resentment so I think a lot of it is conditioning I think a lot of it has also carried on through workplaces I think we do have a lot of these messages um I don't think it's made up is what I'm saying I think we've, we've had a lot of that put on us uh, but I also think now is a really exciting time to start sort of standing in our soft feminine power and naming our needs. I feel like I learned so much throughout this conversation. And I, how can somebody besides your socials, uh, which actually, yes, please tell me your socials, where can everybody find you? But how can they, even if they want coaching or something more to get in touch with you, what would be the best way? It's actually, this is a great time. So uh, you mentioned coming to London. I'm going to come to the States. So I'm going to be doing a bit of a world tour, 
Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm so I'm in the middle of um, launching a few things. So at at Annalie Howling on Instagram, come and join the community at Annalie Howling on TikTok. And then I have, uh, there's a link on my Instagram to my mindset memos, which are my newsletter that goes out on a Friday. It's just two minutes of like a little shift that we can put in, a mindset shift. So relationships, boundaries, avoiding burnout, the things we talk about here. And I also put the information in first about anything that I'm launching. For the first time ever, I'm going to launch group coaching programs, small group cohorts. I'm going to have 15 people in a group. I'm going to do it for different time zones. Um, I'm going to do, it's going to be four months. So one month open Q and A with me, we're going to have WhatsApp groups. I'm going to be on it. I like this whole thing about removing privilege and just also curating mm-hmm. community. Cause I think often when we're doing something and maybe going through a change, quite often our friends are not on the same page as us in that moment. And you really need a community around you that's there for you. And also the whole thing about saying something to a group full of strangers is easier than you may sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I'm doing that, which is going to come out. And then as mentioned, I'm going to be, I'm going to sort some dates up. I'm going to be in LA. I'm probably going to be in New York, but I might do Miami. And uh, then I'm going to do Europe and Dubai as well later in the year. And I'm in London for the one-to-one. That's the, um the emdr work as well so it's one session with me during two hours one-to-one and we do some big deep transformation anything that you think is affecting you living your life how you would choose so uh yeah do you have those dates already set for the u.s they're going to go out um they're going to be going out in the next month or so so the first place to see all of it will be the mindset memos which is the link in uh at the Mm -hmm. moment on the ground to get onto that well thank you so much annalee i will definitely keep track of on those dates and if you don't come to miami i will uh, fly to new york it's no nice. problem i would love yeah. to meet you in person and just i love self-development and i'm so happy that you were on this podcast and thank you again for being here thank you it's been an absolute pleasure